Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Stephanie Boland and this week we'll be talking to philosopher Susan Nyman about how we learn from our history. What does the American moral philosopher make of current concerns with the Irish backstop, Britain's colonial legacy, and how similar conversations have played out across America and Germany? First, though, I'm joined here in the studio by Prospect's own Rebecca Liu. Rebecca, hello. Hiya. One of the things that comes across really clearly in Professor Nyman's work is not just these questions of public history and reckoning with the past, but also specific physical sites from statues to blue plaques to um, signs put up across the American South. I mean, this is something you're really interested in, right? Yeah, I, I think just last week, actually, we were having a discussion in the office about roads must fall. Um, and... I mean, I, f I find multiple things about it really interesting. I think my opinion on it is I very much support sort of student efforts to grapple with, you know, the questions of colonial legacies that they learn in their classes um, in a kind of democratic way within the universities. Um, and there is something difficult about reaching a meaningful conversation when the kind of national press gets involved. And it's, it's an easy punchline, I think, 19-year-olds going too far, but... Um, it's only been a few years since I left university and, and that's not really the experience I had on the ground. Um, but something I do find interesting about that debate in particular, something I do find quite interesting that I think is missing from that debate in particular is um, I think Oriel College, it was shown that the college actually decided to keep the statue up after alumni donors threatened to pull funding um, if they'd taken it down. And to me, uh, that presents deeply salient questions about free speech um, that I think is a bit obscured in the focus of, on teenagers trying to, you know, apply the lessons they learn in the classes the best they can. And like you say, so many of these efforts aren't about trying to obscure historical truths. They're to do with contextualizing them appropriately, right? And and grappling with what that appropriate context might be. I remember a few years ago, I went to quite a strange um, tourist attraction in Lithuania called Grutas Park. Um, it's popularly known as Stalin World. And it's essentially a, a site in the forest where statues, busts of Lenin, kind of other Soviet artworks that were torn down are displayed. 
around the park and they have these guard towers that play military music at you and you sort of feel like you're in this space which is half a replica of a camp, half a site for these objects as artworks. Um, but then they also have the, there's a Lithuanian organization for genocide and resistance research and they provide context to some of these items as well. And it's it's really difficult to know what to make of it. It's quite an uneasy place to go. And um, I looked into the person who did it and he's a man who made all of his money in mushrooms, but actually, <laughs> yeah, but actually had an uncle who was deported to Siberia. So the difficulty of, um, grappling with that cultural history is is put in this very odd scenario. That's a completely different example, but I think it speaks to how complex it can be to decide what the right way is to talk about legacies of of tragic events. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what you were saying really reminded me, um, in cinema, there's this idea of active spectatorship, which is sort of the audience as someone who's not just passively receiving things. Um, you know, the audience is sort of actually actively engaged with questioning what's on screen, being sort of, you know, involved in it rather than receiving the message. And, and that kind of sounds like that park gives that experience of ambivalence that offers sort of presents an opportunity for visitors to really think about you know what they're what they're seeing and why they're seeing what they're seeing and why they might feel what they feel um and I, I suppose they kind of on the opposite end of that spectrum um so yeah I was walking in sort of parliament square last week and I actually have never really been in it and I was quite struck by all these statues on these giant plinths um and and it just felt so imposing. Uh, and I was like, this is quite a strange way to celebrate a republic in a way of, of you know, the square of just really, really, you know, tall figures that are meant to project this unquestioned um, ma majesty, I think, was, was really interesting. Well, I'm really excited now to bring in Professor Susan Nyman to dig into some of these questions in more depth. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yep. 
Susan, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Your book focuses on this concept of Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung, the idea of working off the past. Can you tell us a little bit about that term? Sure. Uh, it's quite interesting that it's only a German term. Right. Now, Germans <laughs> like long compound words, but it's a particular model, I think, which uh, was initiated in Germany after the Second World War, though not immediately afterwards. Traditionally, when nations remember their past, they do one of two things. Either they talk about uh, their glorious, triumphal um, experiences, or they talk about their own suffering and victimization. So what the Germans did after the war was really something new, the idea of looking at uh, what you did wrong in your past, facing it, trying to come to terms with it, both uh, by including it in a national narrative and also doing what one can to atone for it. And it's not a simple process. It takes place on many levels. It certainly involves uh, re-education, changing school books and all of that. But it involves the arts. It involves museums. It involves national iconography, either changing or taking down certain um, symbols uh, or replacing them or contextualizing them through others. So it's a very complex process, and it uh, needs to come from a broad sector of the public. I'm glad you mentioned that of it being a fraught and a very deliberate process, because as you write in the book, but as may be quite shocking to some English listeners, after the war there was a period where the idea of Germans as victims was very powerful in German society. Honestly, it was shocking to me, and it took me decades of living in Germany to really grasp that. Friends of mine already in the early 80s told me with great shame that their parents were Nazis, but they didn't go so far as to say my parents were Nazis and they saw themselves in, uh, as victims. Right. And uh, that is a shocking fact. But in a funny way, I've decided, and that was um, through my work in Mississippi, that that's actually good news because it shows that in any country, even one that has committed as terrible crimes as the Nazis did, there will be conservative pushback. People don't want to face up to their horrible past. So every time you begin to point out the sins of a nation, you will have people saying either forget the past and let's not dig up these old bones and let's look towards the future or this will tear up the national fabric and we won't have any national identity and how can you focus on what's wrong with the country? So that um, paradigm, that pushback is going to be part of any working through the past. And when I was in Mississippi, my um, friends and colleagues and people I was interviewing actually found that they were just as shocked as you are but they found it hopeful because it reflected exactly the kind of conservative pushback that they were facing. That idea that you were hinting at there of it always being an option as well, that you can take an environment that seems quite hostile to that work and, and turn it around is really key. I mean, you speak in the book about Hannah Arendt's coverage of the Adolf Eichmann case, and you interview Bettina Stangneth, who wrote um, Eichmann before Jerusalem, kind of countering some of Arendt's claims about him and 
I mean, listeners should read the book to get the full force of that interview, but one of the things that really comes out is this idea that individual or collective evil is not inevitable or unavoidable, and you can make that choice to address or to change. Absolutely, and that was Arendt's larger point. Um, Bettina Stangnett did wonderful historical work using records that Arendt couldn't have had access to at the time to show that actually the man Adolf Eichmann uh, was uh, evil in a non-banal way. He wasn't simply thoughtless. He knew exactly what he was doing. But that doesn't cut against Arendt's larger point, which is also Stangnet's. Um, namely, um, it's quite rare that people commit evil knowing exactly what they're doing and wanting simply to cause pain and destruction. It does happen. The social psychologist Philip Zombardo has um, said about 2% of the general population anywhere is sociopathic. That is really unable to um, empathize with other people's pain. But that leaves 98% of uh, any population who go along with and um, further and support crimes not because they actively want to cause um, murder and mayhem, but because they're simply get, getting along with the other business of their lives, and it's too much trouble to um, uh, resist or even look at the structures in which they're complicit. So the Nazis could have could not have gotten anywhere without millions of masses of people who simply said yes, who drove the trains, uh, who staffed the police forces um, and the various offices that were involved in all kinds of Nazi repression, including the final solution, without millions of people who simply didn't choose to think about um, what they were saying yes to. Um, it, it wouldn't have happened. I, I very much liked, during the Iraq War, there was uh, an American opposition group which uh, used the title, Not In My Name. And I think when we think about what sorts of crimes are committed in our name, even though we're not the ones committing them, uh, we could get a lot further in reducing the amount of evil in the world. And you very explicitly in the book, don't you, connect these, whether they're acts of malice or acts of collective delusion, or I suppose what Arendt calls the refusal to think. You link this very clearly to anti-enlightenment values and a decision we have to make to, to pursue against that grain. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I could go on about that for a very long time. I think it's extremely important. It's Nothing in the world right now is trendier than to bash the Enlightenment. <laughs> and the interesting thing is it comes from the left as well as the right. It's, um, But let's just take the left at the moment, since um, bashing the Enlightenment from the right is a very old trope. It started during the Enlightenment itself. Bashing the Enlightenment from the left by saying um, the Enlightenment was a force for colonialism and uh, uh, yeah, other forms of, of evil is incredibly short-sighted because it leaves out, first of all, 
people who do that focus on certain passages, which are indeed appalling. I mean, most of the thinkers of the Enlightenment were indeed racist and sexist by today's lights. That's not um, annihilating. We could look at it as confirmation of the old Enlightenment claim that history can progress. We have progressed in certain ways since the 18th century. We've acknowledged racism, we've acknowledged sexism, but we've done it on the backs of the Enlightenment. We've done it by basing ourselves on the Enlightenment ideals um, of universal rights, rights to happiness, which was um, a very new trope, interestingly enough. I mean, happiness wasn't considered something that people were had a right to have. It was something that uh, happened in heaven, maybe, if you were good, or happened in some uh, earlier Garden of Eden, but it, it, it wasn't meant to um, be something that uh, poor people and rich people both had a right to. Um, so... That was terribly important, that people coming together could democratically use reason to come up with the best form of government and the best form of life. That's also an Enlightenment idea, uh, the idea that progress is possible, not that it's necessary. Uh, that was a 19th century idea of Hegel and Marx, and it often gets confused with the Enlightenment. All the Enlightenment said was, progress is possible if men and women work towards it together. So all of those are ideas uh, which we could not use to be self-critical about the things that the Enlightenment got wrong, although they got less wrong than the attackers of the Enlightenment believe. There's an absolutely wonderful passage in one of Immanuel Kant's late writings in which he calls colonialism evil, and he applauds the Chinese and the Japanese for not allowing uh, Europeans, which they didn't at the time, to uh, invade and and colonize their countries. So uh, it's passages like that that really need to be remembered in the middle of this um, anti-enlightenment trend. Because, of course, one of the, the sad and awful facts about enlightenment bashing is it's given great force to the right. And uh, I don't think I did it in this book, but um, in an another little book I wrote, I found some quite amazing quotes uh, from Steve Bannon's publisher and some other really quite important right-wing agitators uh, in the digital media in the United States who said, hey, I read Lacan in college. I read post-colonial studies. Well, if there's no truth and everything is a narrative, I'm simply going to um, come up with the strongest narrative. Now, what ought to be done, in my view, with the fact that so many narratives of our history uh, really were centered on white European men is to enlarge those narratives, to add perspectives from other people, but that doesn't entail saying there's no truth. It just simply says, you know, a traditional narrative focused on one slice of humankind, and we need to broaden the narrative, but not uh, let go of the idea that we can find truth at all.
You mentioned your work in Mississippi earlier, and that comes through very clearly when you get to the Delta, the question of who gets to speak, who gets to be heard, whose voice is just heard as as noise. Um, Talk to me a little bit about what drew you to make the Mississippi Delta a focal point. So Mississippi traditionally has been considered the worst of the worst in the United States, Um, the state with the highest number of lynchings, uh, the state with the worst level of education and health care and everything else. And I confess the first time I went to Mississippi, I was somewhat nervous about it. And I know very many Americans who have never been to Mississippi and who looked at me as if I'd gone mad when I said I was going to go there for half a year. But the truth is, I had decided to write a book about lessons uh, from Germany's working through the past at a moment when it seemed as if America was beginning to do some of the same work. But I thought it would be uh, wrong and preachy to simply say, oh, well, this is how you guys should do it, without taking a good look at what people on the ground were already doing. And moreover, I don't believe that there's a recipe for successfully working through the past. No two histories are exactly alike. You cannot simply take something that worked in one place and immediately transfer it to the other. So I thought about going to the the Deep South, not because I think it's the only place where there's still racism in America. In lots of ways, you could say parts of the North are more racist because the two races are much more segregated than they are in the South. I mean, there simply are more African-Americans in the South and more in Mississippi, uh, above all, but um, Mississippi is a magnifying glass for racism in the rest of the country precisely because there is a Southern tradition of focusing on um, on the history. Now, it's often fabricated, well, not fabricated history, uh, but it it's history that glorifies the Confederacy that puts a sort of air of nostalgia uh, over it and completely ignores the the terror that was actually going on. It's quite interesting. The Old South was um, viewed by Europeans. You can have accounts of English travelers uh, saying, you know, this most civilized part of the United (laughs) States. And in a certain sense, it did bear more resemblance to, let's say, upper-class Europe um, with these large plantations and these beautiful estates and um, a sort of slower and easier air. There were all of these references to the glories of Greece. What I learned, one thing I learned in Mississippi, is that all of those Greek columns on that you'll see as very typical of plantation architecture uh, were very deliberate. What they were um, insinuating in the ar- iconography is the first democracy was built on slavery, and so are we. So this Greek revival style uh, it was actually very insidious. But the focus that uh, Southerners have on their history has been until very, very recently, um, this nostalgic history. In fact, there was a controversy just two weeks ago in the States 
people rent out these plantations for weddings, and um, some of them are beautiful bed and breakfasts, and you can take plantation tours guided by women in hoop skirts and all of that. It's just in the past few years that guides in some of these plantations have begun to excavate the slave cabins, have begun to tell the story of history, and uh, you had travelers um, tweeting, this was terrible, it ruined my vacation, I didn't want to hear about slavery, I wanted to look at the furniture. Um, so again, there's still a lot of pushback to telling the whole story of uh, what went on in the Civil War, which far from ending in 1865, continued in various deep and troubling ways, really through 1965 uh, when we passed the Voting Rights Act, which officially outlawed um, discrimination based on race. Of course, it continues, but uh, it was officially outlawed throughout the country a hundred years after the Civil War. And there are many people who say, and I tend to agree with them, that although the South lost the war, they've actually won both the narrative but also the political control of the country. All kinds of things that foreigners look at in the United States and say, why are they arguing against health care? What in the world could they have against uh, various kinds of social programs which Europeans take for granted? That um, that rejection is absolutely based on the rejection that of Reconstruction, which was the period just after the Civil War, when the federal government for 10 years not only attempted to institute civil rights for African Americans, but the first public orphanages, the first public school, a whole host of public programs. Um, and any public program coming from the federal government is viewed by large, really the majority of the South, as, oh, those Yankees trying to tell us what to do. It's fascinating now, of course, where that sort of beleaguered self-mythologizing goes all the way to the White House, right? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> well, let's just say without that, um, that man wouldn't be in the White House at this moment. I mean, it's very clear that the election of Donald Trump, which of course wasn't entirely an election, he lost by three million votes, but um, unfortunately he won by enough of them. Um, that would have been impossible without the backlash created by millions of Americans who were enraged at having a black family in the White House. And people had T-shirts with that slogan, Make the White House White Again. You talk a lot about the story of Emmett Till and specifically about the different approaches now being taken to that story and the attempts to memorialize is sort of the wrong word but to bring that that history into the present and to to excavate exactly what happened around that tale um there's a very poignant bit in your book where you talk about an attempt to put markers at the sites of the story and that they keep being vandalized um but nevertheless i think you say you know it's better to have the marker and have it be vandalized and have that process play out in public 
Exactly. I I spent a good bit of time right in the Mississippi Delta in this tiny 400-person town where Emmett Till's murderers were put on trial and exonerated, although they later confessed to the crime. Emmett Till was a 14-year-old African-American boy from Chicago, but his his mother was from Mississippi. He went down to spend the summer with his cousins. And because he hadn't been raised in the South, where black people were naturally completely submissive to white people. I mean, um, I met people who were told, you never look a white woman in the eye, you get off the sidewalk if you see a white person passing, Um, yes sir, no ma'am. Right, the social codes are so stringent at that time. And Emmett Till, uh, a 14-year-old boy from Chicago, where things were relatively free, broke the social code and was tortured and murdered. Now, many African-Americans were tortured and murdered at that time, but his mother was an activist, and she insisted on talking about his death and particularly in uh, holding his funeral with an open coffin. And many African-Americans say seeing that photograph of this boy who had been so brutally mutilated uh, was for them a, a defining moment in their understanding of racism. And many people say it was the spark that lit the civil rights movement in 1955. People remember that incident in that town, although like other murders during the civil rights era, there was a very strong attempt to suppress it. And it's quite interesting. Um, You'll sometimes meet African-Americans who say, I heard more about it from outside than I did when I was growing up here. But uh, in the last, let's see, I'm trying to remember when the official apology was. It was 10 years ago. Um, a group of citizens, both black and about half black, half white, came together to offer an apology to the family of Emmett Till. Every word of that apology was argued over. Some people are still unhappy with it, for, but from one side and the other. And in addition to an apology, they raised money to rebuild the courthouse where this trial was held and to open a tiny little museum which does educational programs. Interestingly enough, 17 miles down the road, there's another Emmett Till uh, Museum, which is run by the man whose father was forced to be an accomplice to the murder um, because he worked for one of the white men who planned the murder. So I interviewed him. I interviewed the son of the prosecutor. uh, Sorry, uh, the son of the defense attorney. And many ordinary citizens who talked about the impact that that had on the community. And yes, the awful thing is they have gotten funding to put up signs. There's now um, a little podcast. You can go through the area and visit the various sites. Uh, 
of this murder and of this trial, but the signs are routinely riddled with bullet holes. And I would have thought, okay, the Mississippi Delta is about 80% African-American, but many of the 20% of the white people who live there are redneck racists. Uh, and you say, okay, what sometimes called poor white trash. They're the ones who did, you know, shot up the signs. This summer, a group of University of Mississippi students were photographed with guns, laughing, and they photographed themselves and put it on Facebook, um, laughing and uh, smiling, having shot up one of these signs. University of Mississippi, although it's a state school, it is the elite school in Mississippi. So it's the place where uh, people um, who want to go into politics and, and business who already are, send their sons and daughters. So um, there is still a very strong uh, resistance to this kind of memory. But as you said before, I think it's better that there be that kind of resistance than that there be nothing at all. I was very struck by what you said then about the people you interviewed who said they heard more about the case from the outside. Um, I mean, one thing we haven't spoken about much yet is the UK context. And growing up white in the UK, I certainly heard far more about Germany's crimes than I would ever talk, for instance, about British colonialism and British slavery, um, despite living half an hour from London where half of the city is built on, on colonialism. So uh, Brits are not alone in that, and uh, neither are Mississippians. Um, that's true of the entire United States, or was until very recently. We like to outsource evil. And while I in no way uh, intend to deny the horrors of the Holocaust, it has become a gold standard for the notion of evil. It is the only thing on which there's universal moral consensus. And by focusing over and over again on the Holocaust, and also not on the entire Nazi period, how fascism caught hold, what actually began, the way that it began um, by targeting not Jews, but communists and then social democrats, and then finally Jews, the mechanisms through which that happened, by only focusing on the end point uh, of Auschwitz, we've made it very easy to say, well, anything that wasn't as bad as that wasn't evil. And, um, you know, it's always easier to um, point your fingers at the other person. I, I can, I mean, you have this, this great line in the book, which I underlined immediately, where you say, he did it first isn't even a good argument in the schoolyard. We definitely can't use it when we're talking about history. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think the point I made just a little earlier that even the Germans pushed back in recognizing their own evil is a very hopeful lesson for those of us who see how much conservative pushback there is um, in recognizing Britain's complicity with some of the worst crimes of history. I mean, you mention um, how much of London is built on slavery, and actually, although Britain is very proud that it outlawed slavery before the United States did, if 
Britain had refused to buy Southern cotton, the Confederacy would have fallen apart. And there were pleas from the North. There were strikes in parts of Northern England. I was very happy to hear that recently. That was just lovely to know that, you know, there was that kind of worker solidarity, um, but it wasn't successful. And uh, Britain was afraid of losing out on the on the clothing market to the French, who were uh, if if they didn't continue to buy Southern cotton. So uh, you know, even up through the 1860s, Britain could have done a. I mean, it was it was also outsourcing its evil by um, being very proud of Wilberforce. Again, nothing against Wilberforce, but um, getting wealthy on the profits of a system that you're condemning in public um, is a rather shameful thing to do. You know, there's a shocking amount of ignorance in Britain about Britain's history with Ireland. And that ignorance is playing a role right now in Brexit. You know, to forget the 700 years of occupation, Ireland was the first European colony. And if you go to Ireland, of course, it's quite impossible to forget. But the British have felt up clearly until this administration, oh, that Irish problem, it's their problem, not ours. And the very fact that uh, the question of the backstop is the major problem with Brexit. I mean, I think there are many other problems. I'm, I was devastated when uh, the referendum uh, came out the way it did. And like most people who live in Europe have been hoping for years and years well, not years and years, but for three years, that the British would come to their senses. I think in the last few months, Europe has been um, believing that they won't come to their senses and we're just as well uh, without them for a while until they do come to their senses. But I think there are all kinds of problems with Brexit. Like uh, most people who live in Europe, I was absolutely devastated when um, the first referendum voted to leave. So I think there are all kinds of problems. But that the sticking point has been Ireland, which never played a role during the referendum, never played a role during the deliberations. And in the three years since the referendum has simply been disregarded by every member of uh, the administration as if you could simply wave your hand at um, a piece of history which has been driven and furthered by British colonialism for 700 years is a sign of how deeply this completely ignored and unworked through, unmastered past is affecting politics to this day. I mean, I was working as a journalist in the run-up to that referendum, and it was truly quite staggering. I was in 
Derry just before the vote, actually on the day Tony Blair and, and John Major visited to kind of make this plea for yes, um, or for Remain in Northern Ireland. And coming back to London, back to Britain after that, and Southern Ireland being used by, by politicians in the run-up to that campaign, it was quite um, revealing. Yeah. We'll leave it there. Susan, thank you so much for joining us. And that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening to our interview with Susan Nyman. Her book, Learning from the Germans, Race and the Memory of Evil, is available in bookstores. Next week, we'll be talking to historian William Dalrymple about the East India Company. Rebecca Liu was this week's producer. If you enjoyed the Prospect podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. But until then, we'll see you next week. Goodbye.